Welcome back to the KI Prime podcast. I'm your host, Alina Jenkins, and in this episode, my guest is Professor Ronald Harden. Professor Harden is a world leader in medical education and winner of the Karolinska Prize in 2006. Ideas which he has pioneered include the Objective Structured Clinical Examination, or OSCE, the Spiral Curriculum, and the SPICES model for curriculum planning. He has also published more than 400 papers in leading journals, and his scientific work has promoted excellence in medical education worldwide. After graduating from medical school in Glasgow, he completed training and practice as an endocrinologist. When we spoke early in 2021, I asked him what inspired him to move into the field of medical education. One of my responsibilities in the Department of Medicine when I was doing my endocrinology and thyroid research was the final examination, the clinical examination for students. And this had been criticised. John Stokes, the, a leading UK physician, had talked about the clinical examination as a disaster session, the secret cow of British medicine. And it seemed to me there was a lot of concern about the value of the clinical exam. And I thought I'd better look at that before we took action. So I did a study where I took a group of students in the final examination, and I recorded the video of the examination and got 14 examiners to mark it, to rate it. And right enough, there was a huge discrepancy between their marks. And I also um, asked them to rate it three months later And again, there was a big discrepancy, the same examiner at different times. So it seemed to me there was a problem with this clinical examination. And what should one do about it? Now, in the States, and I had some colleagues there, they also were noting the concern. The Hubbard report, in fact, had recommended they abandon the clinical examination altogether. And they moved entirely to MCQs as a test of competence. And this seemed to me, uh, as a junior lecturer at that time, to be quite wrong, that you could assess a doctor's capabilities on the basis of a written MCQ rather than a clinical watching them perform clinically. So that was the stimulus to think, well, what could we do about it? We knew now there was a problem. I demonstrated this from that small study, which we actually published in The Lancet. And what would we do about it? And that started me thinking about it, getting into alternatives. And that was the beginning of the objective structured clinical examination and all the research we did to show that there was an alternative other than a written examination. You could have a clinical exam that was more reliable, that was more valid, that was feasible. And that was the start of my interest in in education. Because, of course, the OSCEs have been universally adopted as a standard approach to the assessment of clinical competence. And you're known as being the pioneer of this system, which is now so widely used around the globe. Yeah, I think one of the reasons it's become more widely used is because it's a flexible tool. People can adapt it. And in fact, as I go visit other centres, I'm always 
interested and impressed by how they've innovatively adapted it to their own situation. And I, I think it is a flexible tool that people can fit in with their own particular uh, circumstances and adapt it to their own needs. Was it important for you all those years ago to design a system which could adapt over time and as science evolved? Yes, I've always been interested in looking at practical solutions and not just theoretical solutions and through to solutions that were generalizable. In fact, the thing that really uh, probably gave me most satisfaction from the OSCE was when the, the police actually adopted it as a national examination for the police force. At the same time, they had the problem of how do we assess people from promotion from detectives to inspectors in the police force, and they'd have written the exam, and they said that's not assessing sort of practical competencies. So they come and came and watched us doing some of our OSCEs, and they adopted an OSCE because it was the same thing they were looking for. How do you communicate? How do you assess em- evidence? How do you look at problems? And they adopted the same techniques and they examined the police force. And that actually gave me a lot of satisfaction knowing that the principles underpinning it were generalizable to other areas. From that first thought to actually implementing it, what was the path you had to go down? And was there any resistance to your ideas? I imagine the field wasn't as welcoming and open as it is now. So did you find any challenges along the way? Yes, people were very traditional. I mean, I think how we got it first adopted was persuading people not to have it as a final examination, but to do it as a pilot test, and but we could ignore it if it didn't work. And that was a sort of offer people couldn't refuse. So even the more sceptical examiners uh, could agree to do a pilot study of it alongside the traditional examination. And I think that was so successful, the pilot, that next year there was not a, a, a problem in persuading others to, to join in the, it as a formal examination. Something which is popular now, and I guess the OSCE leads into that, is the idea of competency-based medical education. And I was reading an article you wrote a while ago, and one of the subsections said, promise and perils, the implications of CBME approach for health professions. So within that, it seems there are some great things around CBME, but others that remain a bit tricky. Yeah, I mean, I think what it is giving a tool that if you have established the competencies, then you kind of a blueprint that say how you're going to assess the competencies. Because I think a key to competency-based education is the assessment of the competencies. And if you have this blueprint or grid, and you can use a range of tools and an OSCE, and if you station in an OSCE, you can chart which of the competencies is that station assessing. So at the end of the examination, it's not just have you passed or failed the examination, but which of the competencies have you achieved the satisfactory standard in and where are there areas where there's still room for improvement? I was watching an interview you did about seven or eight years ago when you were in Singapore where you said one of the things you wanted to see happen in the coming years was more collaboration. Do you think that's happened? Sure, I I think so. The fact that with the Karolinska Prize that it's been given more respectability you know, I think that is a, a key factor in this. And I think there is undoubtedly more collaboration. If you look, for example, at the papers, workshops being submitted to the AMA annual conference, there's been a huge change in that now it's the norm more than half had authors from two or more, not just different, the same centre, but from different countries. 
so that collaborative research now is actually become more the the norm. And I think the need for collaboration, this, I think, moved to unbundling the curriculum where no one medical school can do everything themselves. I think it's important. And I think the COVID pandemic has added, uh, I'm giving a talk the other week on the implication of the COVID pandemic, and I think that is one of the trends there. It has uh, reinforced this need for collaboration. No one school, I think, can deliver the complete program themselves uh, online or whatever tool they're using. And collaboration really is much more important. And international collaboration is even more important. You mentioned COVID there. What do you think will be some of the long-term effects in medical education based on the short-term changes people have had to make in the last year? Yeah, I think you know collaboration is one of them, obviously. I think the move to more online learning is very definite. But I think there's a, a risk there that I know already some schools have made a commitment to move their whole programme online. And I think that is a a, a mistake. I mean, I think it, it, there is need for a mixed economy. Uh, it's something I've always thought about in medical education. It's when I introduced the spices model with different educational strategies. It was not, uh, one was often asked, are you in favour of integration or are you in favour of problem-based learning? And it was where on the continuum do you want to be between a completely integrated curriculum and a completely displaced cur- curriculum? And I think that's the question that often is ignored. And I think that's the risk we have at the moment, that schools and individuals are so committed to online learning that they say that's the thing of the future, lectures are the past, and abandon all lectures and replace them with online learning. And I I think that's a great mistake. I think there's a, a mixed economy where there is still a magic and something to be gained from a live lecture. And I think they will still persist. But of course, I think there is need also for recorded lectures and online presentations. I guess it boils down to how do people best learn? And yes, online training and seminars are very useful and you can do them wherever you are in the world. But something we've talked about a lot in this podcast series is communication and human connection. And and you're right, you can't dismiss the value of face-to-face learning. Do you think it will come back? Oh, sure. I think there is something still magic, as I said, about the face-to-face. I I remember many years ago, I watched the film on Golden Pond, and I happened to see see a a theatre, a play of the same story, and read the book. So three different media. And in my mind, there was no doubt that, wow, the film was terrific and the book was enchanting. The theatre had something special that gripped me, got me more engaged and involved with these individuals in this fascinating story. So I think there is something about the the live theatre. In fact, the dean at uh, McMaster said one of the biggest mistakes they made at McMaster at the beginning was avoiding all lectures because he he said there's something unique about a lecture that the experienced lecture, of course, lecture have been overused and lectures have been misused, but there is still something you've done properly. There's something magical about a lecturer addressing a large group of students and engaging them with his passion for the subject and for their learning of the subject. Of course, we're here to talk about the Karolinska Prize and the importance of it, and you were one of the early winners back in 2006. What did it mean to you and what impact, if any, did it have on your career? Oh, I think... Prior to this, there were, of course, many prizes for research in other fields of education. 
but there's no similar recognition for research. And obviously, I, I was successful at that time, and I published more than 200 papers in my research on thyroid disease and iodine metabolism. And the, the encouragement was to spend more of my time there. And getting the Karolinska Prize suggested that, look, you could also get credit for research and education, that it gave education a, a, the sort of esteem uh, that had been previously missing and highlighted it's important. When I spent time in education, this could be recognised and people would attract value to it. I was you know, quite interesting at the often going to conferences, as I said in my CV, and I I said, please don't read out my CV. I found it both embarrassing and it took time away from my lecture as well. But I said, pick out one or two things that interest you. And occasionally they picked out like the Hubbard Award or the Goosey Peace Prize. But almost always, in fact, always, there were two things they picked out from my CV. One was the OBE from the, the, Queen's, uh, the Queen Award. But the second thing they always picked out was the Karolinska Prize. And obviously, this this Karolinska Prize gave instant recognition, and actually, it was a recognition that it was such a thing as scholarship in medical education, and not just in scientific research like my word on iodine metabolism. And I think it changed the whole scene, and uh, from just something that you did on the side if you had time and uh, occasionally in an amateur sort of way to give it a respectability that elevated it, both the award, how it was decided, how it was presented, give the whole issue of medical education respect and, and enthusiasm. Which I think is what exactly Gunnar and Anastina were aiming for, to raise awareness, to create recognition and to spread the word. And that's what the Karolinska Prize continues to do. What are your thoughts on the recent initiative of creating the fellowship? Oh, I think it's it's great because I think one of the problems in education research has always been it's been a sort of lonely, isolated activity. You know, people maybe there's only one person interested in the school, and it's not really been very much uh, recognised for promotion. And I think there's been a great need to encourage and to bring together people and support them who have got research and education and through things like even just participating in meetings like Amy conferences and so on. But I think the fellowship is a very good example of how we can actually build up this next generation and bring people together and share their activities. And in terms of mentorship, I mean, I, I think I was very fortunate in my early days that when I was in Glasgow, there was a senior lecturer in education that got quite interested in what I was doing. He found it slightly amusing at first, that, but then he got quite interested in what I was doing with the OSCE and the other independent learning. But he was uh, taught me a lot. Uh, apart from being an educationist, he'd, in the armed forces, he'd been a chief instructor in jungle warfare. So he had a very practical approach. And he, that's what gave me, working with him, learning from him, gave me this very practical approach to, to education. So I think the people you work with, the people you can have as mentors are very influential in your ongoing activities. Ronald, I wondered if there are any trends emerging in the field of medical education at the moment which excite you. I think the biggest trend at the move moment that, in fact, I'm just working on a book on it at the moment, on the, the changing role of the student. You know, I think we've seen the student as very much a consumer or a client and I think this notion of the student as a partner in the learning process 
And I think the COVID pandemic has given an ed- added impetus to this. But I think that's the, the the role that different people play is 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 important. And I think we've we, we've not looked enough at this, uh, both teachers and students. I, I remember one of the things I've uh, message I've learned is to pass on is that you should also get interest in things outside your own area of interest. And I try to go each year to the tech learn conferences, more general education conferences, nothing to do about medicine. And there are some fascinating things. Wayne Hodgins was giving a talk. He was a future strategist. And he reported the study that what happened when refrigerators were introduced into the States. And previously, their ice distributors had their business distributing ice to homes and to restaurants. And what was fascinating was when refrigerators were introduced, almost all of these ice distributors went out of business. Nobody wanted now uh, ice distributors at their home because they're a refrigerator or in their business. And he said, well, the message for education is that they were too concentrated in the ice distributors in the, the activity of distributing ice. What they ignored was, what was the function they were fulfilling? And that was helping people to keep their food and things cool. And he said, the same in education. The lecturers are too busy what they're Activities are giving lectures, running small groups, setting exams. But what is their function? What is their role? And that was similar to a book I published just a couple of years ago on the roles of the teacher. But then it moved on to think, well, but also what are the roles of students in this education process and looking after themselves and so on? And so I think this, this notion of the different roles of actors in the process is something we, we've, we've ignored. And my final question is, what's been your philosophy throughout your career? Are there any words of wisdom you would pass down to the next generation? A difficult question to answer, obviously. But what I thought was, really, it was a military cadet maxim that I think summed up what I believe of my philosophy, the notion that risk, uh, risk more than others feel is safe, care more than others think is wise, dream more than others think is a practical and expect more than others think is possible. And I think that seemed to me a, a good philosophy to pursue medical education. And I think it's very much in keeping with the Karolinska Prize. Professor Ronald Harden. I hope you can join me next time for the final episode where we'll be hearing from the inaugural winner of the prize in 2004, Professor Henk Schmidt, whose research has influenced and inspired medical education worldwide. Until then, goodbye. Thank you.